Shalom. This is Gary Duroshinsky, Congregational Leader of Beth Ariel Messianic Congregation. Thank you for downloading our message. We're delighted to make it available to you through the generous donations of our members and friends at Beth Ariel. We know that many are struggling financially because of the challenges facing our economy, and we do not want financial issues to keep anyone from enjoying our teachings. So please continue to listen in as often as you like. But if our presentations have been beneficial to you, and you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel, whether large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at bethariel.org. That is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L dot org. Also, please remember to pray for us that we would be responsive to the Lord's guidance as we reach out to the lost sheep of the House of Israel in the greater Los Angeles area. Thank you, and I hope you enjoy this message. Now, if you have your Bibles, Genesis chapter 22, this is the incident, the story, the record of Abraham offering up his son Isaac. It is a passage that is traditionally read and reflected on on Rosh Hashanah. After all, Rosh Hashanah, the Feast of Trumpets, is the time of the blowing of the shofar. And the story of Abraham concludes with Abraham being provided a ram that is caught in the thicket by its horn, which is offered in place of Isaac and thus the connection between the blowing of the ram's horn on Rosh Hashanah and the provision God had provided for Abraham found in this chapter kind of come together. And so after we share, I share a little bit from God's word, uh, we'll have the blowing of the shofar. And in your brochures, uh, you'll see the various reasons why the shofar is blown. But as the shofar is blown, we want to just reflect on the grace of God, the promise of his son who has come into our world, and the promise that he one day will come again. But let me read these passages for you. Chapter 22, verses 1 through 19 or so. It says, sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here am I. Abraham replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. Early the next morning, Abraham got up, saddled his donkey, He took with him two of his servants and his son, Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering. He placed it on his son Isaac, and he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father, Abraham, father. Yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and the wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. 
And the two of them went on together. When they reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac, laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here am I, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up, and there in a thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called this place, the Lord will provide. And to this day it is said, on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven a second time and said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies. And through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. Then Abraham returned to his servants and they set off together for Bethsheba and Abraham stayed in Beersheba. This has got to be perhaps the greatest story told in the Bible apart from the offering up of Messiah himself, right? This has to be one of the greatest stories ever told in ancient literature. And this is a very powerful revelation of God's presence in the life of this man, Abraham. This is a very critical chapter in all of the Bible. We know that because of the uniqueness of this chapter. There are a number of things, for example, scholars always tell us to look for when we're studying the Word of God. One of the things you look for is first-mentioned items. And in this chapter, there are a number of first mentions in the Scripture. For example, if you look at Genesis chapter 22, and in verse 17, it says, For the first time, your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies. Up to this time, the promise was that all this land would be given to Abraham and he would possess it. But this is the first time we're told Israel will have enemies, but Israel will triumph over them and take possession of those cities. This is also the very first time we hear God swearing. If you look at verse 16, I swear by myself, declares the Lord. This is the first time the Lord makes this oath as unto himself. Not only that, this is the first time in the Bible that the word love appears where it says, take your son Isaac, whom you love. 
It's interesting that the word love occurs with regard to the relationship of a father and his son. The first time the word love appears in the Brit Hadashah is in John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Isn't it interesting? First time the words love appear, they're in regard to the love of a father for his son and the offering up of that son in behalf of others. It's the first time the word test is found in the scripture, that God tested Abraham. This has always raised questions in people's minds because it is thought that God does not test people, but he does test us. He doesn't test us so as to harm us. That is what the evil one does. The evil one tempts us, and the meaning is to lure us to do evil that we might find ourselves hurt, destroyed, maimed, or killed. But God tests us to demonstrate his work in our lives. That's why he says to the evil one, have you seen my servant Job? And allows him to be so tested so as to demonstrate what Job was really made of. Job, no doubt, felt he was not made of very much. But God thought better of him than he thought of himself. When the evil one came and tempted Yeshua, it was in an attempt to lure him from the work God had called him, but called him to. But God permitted the testing because he wanted to demonstrate what was truly in his son. For he is the one who had come to take away the sin of the world. And the testing brought out what was true about him. That's true for all of us. The Lord certainly disciplines his children with an attempt and desire to bring us to a place of maturity and a place of growth and a place where we see what we're really made of. It's in the crucible of testing that we begin to realize who we are and what God really means to us. It is only when we get to that point where we realize we are a little flock, that we recognize the all-powerfulness of God. And thus, when the testings come, we may feel reduced to the very mere minimum of who we are. But it's so that the strength of God might rise forth and that he would be seen. This is what we see with Abraham. In fact, I just want to share some thoughts with you that I've only come to really appreciate in the last few days and weeks that I've been looking at this passage. The first thing I'd like to draw to your attention is this idea of God calling us. We have this idea 
that living a life of faith means to just do the best we can as God enables us to do. But you know, that's not what we are to be about. We are a called people. And therefore, what we are to be about is to fulfill the calling God has given to us when he called us initially. It isn't just a matter of being the best persons we can be. We have to do the will of God who has called us unto himself. Now think about this with Abraham. God comes to him and he only says once, Abraham. It's interesting that when he's about to slay his son, the angel of the Lord has to call him twice. Abraham, Abraham. Why? Because Abraham was dead set on doing what God had called him to do. Here he calls him once. And if you think about this, the very first time Abraham was called was in Genesis chapter 12, the beginning of his life. Well, he's 75, but the beginning of his life as we know it. In Genesis chapter 22, he is now nearly 175, nearly. His death is recorded two chapters later in chapter 25 or so. And he's 175 when he dies. In the next chapter, chapter 23, we read of Isaac, but we read also of Sarah's death at 127. The chapter previous to this is the birth of Isaac, the weaning of Isaac, and then the expulsion of Ishmael. And it says that God came to Abraham after these things. That's what it says in chapter 22, verse 1. Well, what things? Chapter 21. But look at the last phrase. Abraham stayed in the land of the Philistines for a long time. So a lot of time has transpired since the birth of Isaac. Abraham, we have no record of God speaking to him during that intervening of time. It's almost as if God has been silent for maybe 30 some odd years. Some people believe that, a that Isaac could be as old as 25 in chapter 22. Some believe he was young as 15 or so. But in any case, a number of years have transpired. God comes to Abraham and he calls him. Now in chapter 12, God initially called him. Now at the end of his life, God calls him again. And the two calls are very similar. When he calls him in chapter 12, he calls him from Ur the Chaldeans and he tells him to go to a place that I would show you. When he calls him in chapter 22, again, he comes to him and he says, Abraham, I want you to go to offer up your son on Mount Moriah at a place I will show you. Abraham did not know where he was going in chapter 22 and he, in chapter 12, and he doesn't know where he's going in chapter 22. When he's called in chapter 12, when you read around verse 8 or 9, you'll see that after he responds to God, goes to the land that God would show him, that he then creates an altar and he makes an offering to the Lord. Here in chapter 22, he again makes an altar, and on this occasion, he makes an offering to the Lord as well. Initially his son, but then a ram that the Lord will, uh, that he will find caught in the thicket by its horns. The two calls are very similar in the life of Abraham. 
And you know, that's what God does to you and I. If you know Messiah as Savior, it's because God has called you to himself, like he called Abraham to himself. The reason why you're a believer is because God has called you. There was a time when he had not called us. We didn't hear his voice. We were not responsive and we went on in our lives. But some things occurred in our life and God's voice broke through and we heard his voice. He called and we responded, not knowing what he was going to do with our lives. Not knowing where we were ultimately going to go, not knowing ultimately what we were going to do. But in the final analysis, we would offer up an offering of praise and thanksgiving to the Lord. It's very similar what God has done. But what's really neat to me, I started reading in the, in the Brit Hadashah different passages about God's call. Couldn't memorize all of these, so I wrote down some of these things. But what does it mean to be called by God? Abraham was, what does it mean? And when you look at Romans chapter 8, verse 28, it means that we're called to God's purposes. We think we're just called to live a good life. We're not. We're called to fulfill the purpose of God. And in Romans 8, 28, the purpose of God is to be like Messiah. We're called to be conformed into the image of his son. So the question is, are you becoming more or less like Messiah? Not whether or not you're being good or otherwise. Are you being more like him? Are you willing to give up more of yourself? Are you willing to be a servant to those who are in need? Are you ready to be compassionate to those who hurt? Are you ready to teach the word of God where questions are asked and answers need to be given? In other words, we're to be conformed into the image of Messiah. What was he like? And are we like him? Are we gentle as he was? Are we a shepherd to the sheep that need shepherding? Are we leading and guiding to places of fulfillment and meaning and significance? Or are we just simply trying to be good? If we're trying to be good, we're not fulfilling the call that God has given to us. You look at anyone in the world just about, just about, don't look at ISIS, but just about. Everyone else will tell you, I'm trying to be the best person I can. I'm trying to do good in my place of residence and in my world. I'm trying to be a good parent. And all those things are admirable. But that's not what God has particularly called us to. He's called us to be like his son. It certainly means being a good parent. It certainly means doing good things. Please don't misunderstand me. Don't make me cross my T's and dot my I's. But the point is we're called to be like Messiah. And indeed, Paul tells us those who are called will be justified. And those who are justified will be glorified. It begins with the call of God. I looked at some other passages in Romans chapter 8, verse 30. We're told that the call of God leads us into a right standing with him. That's what it means to be justified. If we're going to stand right before God, forgiven before God, it comes as a result of God's calling upon our lives. In 1 Corinthians, this is an amazing passage, one that radically altered my thinking when I was first a young believer. 
Let me draw your attention to it. I won't go through all these different passages, but there's quite a few here when we think of God's call. But if you would, turn with me to 1 Corinthians. If you have your Bibles there, I'll read it for you. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, this radically altered my whole walk with God, this passage. In verse 26, he says, Brothers, think of what you were, here it is, when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. Here it is again. But God called, he chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose or he called the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose or he called the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Messiah. He has become for us Wisdom. He has become our righteousness. He has become our holiness. He has become our redemption. Therefore, it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. It's the call of God that has made us what we are in him and what we are to become by him. Notice this. The call of God is not a one-time event. It's an ongoing event in our lives. God called Abraham at the beginning and the end of his life. Are you hearing his voice through your life? So that's what this passage raises for me to think about. Are we hearing the call of God during our life? Or are we just trying to be good the best we can? That's not what God wants from us. He wants us to know him and to follow him, to respond to him, and to heed his call on our hearts. That's what God is after, like a father that loves his son. He wants him to hear his voice and heed that voice. And so Abraham is called by God. Now listen to what God calls him to do. To take his son, his only son, Isaac, whom he loves. Now when he says his only son, it is true it is his only son because Ishmael is now gone. In another sense, it's not his only, only son, because Ishmael is his son, though not with him. But the Hebrew word here means more than just singular son. It means his unique son, his one-of-a-kind son. That is, the son through whom the promise that God has made to Abraham would be fulfilled. Remember, he told Abraham, in your seed, Isaac, shall the nations of the world be blessed. He said, I will multiply your seed through Isaac so that it will number like the stars in heaven. They say we could see 3,000 stars with the naked eye. 
I never knew that before, but I read about 3,000 stars we could see. And we might say, well, that's not a lot. But then he says, in the sand on the seashore. Now, there's a lot of sand. But it would come through Isaac. And he's telling him to take that son and offer him as an offering. Now, it's very important that we understand he's not asking or calling Abraham to murder his son. That's what we think in the 20th century. But if we throw ourselves back to 2,500 years before the time of Messiah, this was not a call to murder. Had he called him to go in and slay Sarah, God would never have done that, and Abraham never would have responded to that. He would not respond to God saying, I want you to murder your son. No, no, no. He said, offer him as an offering on the altar. Now, what we don't realize today is that in the ancient world, families were not perceived individually. Families were whole communities, were whole bodies. And so in the ancient world, and we see this in the, in the Hebrew scriptures, they had what is known as the right of primogeniture, the right of the firstborn. And so the firstborn always got a double portion of the father's inheritance. And the purpose was because in the ancient world you had many children. And if a man's inheritance was divided up among many of his children, well, then none of his children would have very much, and the influence of that family would become insignificant in the ancient world. So what the ancient world prescribed by law was that the firstborn received a double portion, so that the firstborn was wealthier than the remaining children and their descendants, though they're part of that family. And therefore, the firstborn had the responsibility of taking care of the rest of the family if there was a need there. But this way, the inheritance is substantial and it is recognized over centuries and generations. What's interesting in the Hebrew Scriptures, God disregards this law. Cain is the oldest, but God chooses Abel. Ishmael is the oldest, but God chooses Isaac. Esau is the oldest, but God chooses Jacob. The other sons are the oldest, but God chooses Joseph. The point is God sort of reacts to this law, and he does just the opposite to demonstrate his glory and his power. Now, what happens with the firstborn is that the firstborn, therefore, belong to God. And that's why the scriptures speak of the necessity to redeem the firstborn. You see this in the book of Deuteronomy. But you see the same thing happening, for example, in Passover. It's the firstborn son that is targeted by the angel of death. That the sprinkling of blood on the two side doorposts must protect. Because in the ancient world, there was a sense of sin. There was a sense of violating the laws of God, whoever God you might have worshipped. And therefore, the ancients often were known for sacrificing their children. God disdained that, but that's what they did. Because that's how they understood the appeasement of their sin. 
So when God called Abraham to offer up his son, Abraham knew exactly what God was calling him to do. He knew that the sin of his family was being called into account and God was calling that the debt would be paid and the firstborn is the one that is to pay that debt. The challenge, the contradiction, the paradox is that God had promised Abraham that through this son that he now was requiring as a sacrifice for sin was the one through whom the promises to Abraham would be fulfilled. How would God fulfill his justice while at the same time fulfill his promises to Abraham? That's the dilemma that God puts himself in. God puts himself in all kinds of dilemmas like this. He promises the coming of a Messiah through that of a virgin. How's that going to happen? And God miraculously does just that. Here, God needs to pay a, have a debt paid, but at the same time, he must fulfill the promise to Abraham. And Abraham is not just trying to obey God. He's trying to fulfill the call of God to offer up his son. And so we read, and this is something the commentators all make mention of. When you read Genesis 12, the action is very fast at the front end of the chapter. God said, take your son early the next morning. Abraham got up, saddled his donkey, took with him two servants, his son Isaac. They cut enough wood for the burnt offering, and he set out for the place. And on the third day, God, Abraham looked up, he saw the place, and he said to his servants, stay here, and I and the boy will go over and we'll worship, and we'll come back to you. Then at verse 6, the commentators tell us, the action slows down. And it's here that the writer, Moses, wants us to really think about what's going on. But notice what has happened. They've traveled three days. It's not odd that three days, we know Yeshua had been risen on the third day. It's interesting, the same three days. It's interesting, he tells them to go to Moriah, a place in Moriah. Later in 2 Chronicles chapter 3, verse 1, we'll learn that Moriah is the place where God instructs Solomon to build the temple. It will be on Moriah that many sacrifices of animals will be offered. Thousands upon thousands upon thousands will be offered over the history of Israel for atonement for sin. In fact, that's what this text even says, that on the mountain the offerings will be offered when we come to the end of the passage. And on the very spot where the temple will be constructed and not far from there, where Messiah himself will come and offer the final offering, that's where Abraham is headed. He has two servants, but he tells his servants to stay away from the mountains. Almost like Moses was not allowing Joshua or anyone else to come up, only God could go up. And here, the only ones that could go up this mountain are Abraham and his son. It's also kind of neat to me that when they go up, Isaac has the wood. But notice what Abraham carries, the fire and the knife. He's got the dangerous stuff. And Isaac's got the wood. 
you get to see something of the glimpse of the tenderness of Abraham and the love of Abraham. So many things to think about in this whole passage. But twice the text says that, uh, let me see if I can find them real quick, um, where he says, The fire and the wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb? Abraham answered, God himself will provide. And the two of them went on together. That phrase is repeated twice in this passage. I can't help but think that only the father and the son are permitted up on the mountain in response to the call of God, and it's the father and the son in later centuries when Yeshua comes who alone go up the mountain, as it were, Calvary, and Messiah gives his life for the sin of the world. These parallels are not odd. They're very deliberate as we read this passage. And then as we go further... When they reached the place God had told them about, Abraham built an altar and arranged the wood. I'm sure he really took his time. He probably found a rock and said, no, that's not a good one, and kept walking, you know, oh, here's a good one, and took his time building the altar now. And then he probably, no, I don't like the stick there, you know, (laughs) trying to stall for time. And finally, he places his son on the altar. Now, let me say one other thing about God's call. First of all, his call is what we need to respond to. The second thing is the nature of God's call can be rather startling, right? That God doesn't just call us to peace. He also calls us sometime to great consternation and suffering. He called Abraham to slay his son. He called Daniel to go into a lion's den. He called Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah to walk into a fiery furnace. He called his son to go to Calvary. He called many of his disciples to give their life for their testimony. He calls us often to very hard places. And I think What God wants us to learn in all that, something I'm beginning, only beginning to learn during this time of challenge for me, during this time of heartache and struggle for me, is what I read about Abraham in Hebrews chapter 11. If you have your Bible, you can turn there. In Hebrews 11, we're given some explanation about what it was that drove Abraham, beckoned him on, and encouraged him further. In Hebrews chapter 11, this faith chapter, verse 8, by faith Abraham, here it is again, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, he obeyed, he went, even though he did not know where he was going. I mean, can't you testify to that? God calls us to hard places. We have no idea where we're going. It's like what Isaac says, you know, here's the wood, here's the fire, but where's the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham says, the Lord will provide for himself. I have no idea what God is going to do to resolve this tension between the promise through you and the death that he's requiring to make of you. 
But look what the writer goes on to say. By faith, he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. Now listen to this. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations, which architect and builder is God. Abraham knew that in this world, there is no foundations. In this world, whatever you place your hope in can come out from under you without a moment's notice. You're putting your hope in a 401k, it could be gone if the market collapses. You're putting your faith in your spouse, your best friend, they could walk out on you at any time. You're putting your faith in your job, it could be lost. Putting your faith in your health and in your stamina, it could be taken from you like that. The only firm foundation is God. That's what Abraham learned and knew. He could do what he did because God's call and his knowledge that God is my foundation and nothing else is. That's a hard lesson to learn because we're always looking to other things to buttress us, to support us, and to stabilize us. But Abraham was not looking to the promised land, though that's where he dwelt. He was looking to a foundation whose builder and maker was God. So the question is, what is the foundation you're resting in? What is the foundation you're putting your hope in? What is the foundation that enables you to get through life when life turns a bad turn on you? If it's anything other than God, you will be crushed and you'll be ripped apart inside and out. One day, we will all, all of us, we will lose everything. One day, it will all go from us. And then what will we have? I've been at many people's bedsides on their way to death. And they have nothing but perhaps some people around them. But if our builder and maker is God, whose foundation is secure, we can even step into the fires of death, knowing that it is he who will greet us on the other side. Abraham was able to take his son because his foundation was not his son. His foundation was not even his own rational sense of doing well. His foundation was God himself who called him. And what happens? God then shows up because that's what he always does. Fear not, little flock, for it is the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. He shows up. We have to remember we are a little flock, but he shows up. And look what God does. The angel of the Lord called to him and said, not to slay your son. This was to demonstrate that your love for me was preeminent because you recognize that I'm the foundation in your life. By the way, it made me think of Yeshua's own words in the Sermon on the Mount. If we build our house on sand, anything other than the rock 
who is Messiah, the building one day will fall. The storms of life, that's what Yeshua is telling us. The rains, the winds will come, and the foundation is not God, it is not Messiah, and it will crumble and fall. And we will be shattered. But if our builder is God, even if the house falls, our foundation is secure and we'll stand on him. But the Lord then shows up and tells him that a ram is found to be found in his place. Abraham somewhat intuitively knew this because he said, I and the lad will go and worship Worship, think about this. He went up to worship God by offering up his son. To worship, and that after his worship, they would return. So he had this sense that God would show up and make a blessing. And the Lord provided the ram. Now I want to show you one last thing. I just learned this, and this was such a neat thing for me to learn. I think you'll find it to be kind of neat too. Look at verse 12. He said, do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Now I want you to turn over to this passage in the brief Tadashah. Look at the book of Romans. And check this out, in Romans chapter 8, in verse 32, Paul writes, If God is for us, who could be against us? This is what we're saying. He's our foundation. Now listen to this in verse 32. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Now, you know what was kind of neat? Paul says in verse 32 about God not sparing his own son. In the Genesis account, if you turn to the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures written about 150 years. You know what I learned? I'd never known this before. The word in Hebrew that's translated in my English translation as withheld is the same Greek word Paul uses in Romans 8, to, meaning to spare. In other words, we could translate this that he said, do not do it. Now I know that you fear God because you have not spared your son your only son. Paul says the exact same thing. The very same Greek word, efface. The very same word. I think Paul was reading Genesis 12 when he wrote Romans 8. And he said, just like Abraham did not spare his own son, God the Father did not spare his own son. And then when you read further, it says, the angel then said again, I swear my, by myself, that because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, he says, I will bless you. And in verse 13, he, caught, he found the ram and Abraham called the place the Lord will provide. And to this day, it is said, I mean, Moses is writing this. 
To this day, it is said, on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. You know, the word to provide is the word to see. And so Abraham couldn't see what God was about to do. He didn't really know. He couldn't see it. Isaac couldn't see it. But God saw what he was planning to do from the beginning. And God provided for Abraham. Then what the angel says on the mountain of the Lord, it, it will be provided. What will be provided? The final atonement for all of sin would be provided. Even to this day, Moses is saying, on that mountain, offerings are going to be offered, and then it, the final offering, will be offered. And the final provision will be provided. And just as Isaac and Abraham go walk together, the Father and Messiah walk together to provide atonement for you and me. So the big question is, have you heard God's call? Have you heard God's voice? If you have, the question is, do you continue to hear his voice? Do you continue to hear his call? And are you living in light of his call and not simply trying to be the best person you can be? That's what God is after. And God's provision is in the Lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world. So let's pray a moment. Father in heaven, we are grateful for this incredible encounter that Abraham had with you. Father, there are many that simply look back on their past and remember that moment they invited you into their lives and that's all their life has been about with you is what happened 5, 10, 15, 20, 30, or 40, or 50 years ago. But that's not what you're about. You're about the continuous call and the sounding of your voice among your people. And so, Lord, we just don't want to reflect on when we heard it back then. We want to reflect on how we hear it today. We can hear your voice through your word. We can hear your voice as your spirit speaks to our hearts. But we need to be responsive so that, Lord, we might be like Abraham. May our life be one built on the firm foundation who is Messiah of Israel, for there is no other. And in doing so, whatever the challenges that come before us, whatever the trials that we face, whatever the struggles we have, we have a foundation that can never erode out from under us. Help us, Father, to experience that and to live in light of it. May this Rosh Hashanah be a beginning of that kind of journey for some here this evening. 
May it be a continuation of a journey that was begun some time before for others. But may it be a journey in which we walk together with you. And not merely for you. But with you, dependent upon you, as your grace is extended to us. Speak to our hearts, we pray, for we ask in Yeshua's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to our message. We hope that it serves to encourage you in your walk with the Lord and your service to Him. Do remember us in your prayers, and if you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel, whether large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at BethAriel.org. That is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L dot org. Thank you again, and may our Heavenly Father richly bless you as you continue to follow Him. Shalom, shalom.